we start with contract talks between the BC government and the BC Teachers Federation, always one of the toughest unions this government has to deal with. I've got BCTF President Terry Mooring standing by. Let's have a listen first to one of their ads that is playing right now, part of their public campaign here as part of their contract talks. Let's have a listen here. These last few years, parents and teachers have worked together to adapt, to keep our kids safe and learning. Now we have an opportunity to keep working together to end BC's teacher shortage. With some of the lowest teacher salaries in Canada, it's getting harder for teachers to afford to work here. Let's tell the BC government, teachers need a salary that keeps up with the cost of living. Because more teachers mean more learning supports for our kids. A message from BC Teachers. All right, that ad from the BC Teachers Federation. Let's check in with the BCTF president now, Terry Mooring. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Terry. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, Terry, we're not going to charge you for that one. Okay, it was a freebie for you there, that ad. <laughs> Thanks for that, Mike. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. Good ad. Okay, okay. So let's talk about the issues here. I, I thought it was really interesting that in the ad you talk about teachers being underpaid. Can you expand on that? Well, teachers in BC are the second lowest paid uh, nationally, uh, behind Quebec, uh, in the high in the jurisdiction with the highest cost of living. Um, yeah. And we know cost of living is on everyone's minds right now with gas prices, um, especially for teachers that have to commute because they can't afford to live in the communities where they live, where they teach, I should say. Um, and so I, I know that's top of mind for everyone. And you know, I think it's no secret that teachers and the rest of the public service, in fact have really fallen behind in terms of wages over the last couple of decades. Yeah. And so with, you know, the cost of living, with the teacher shortage, with the high, um, you know, with the low salary, you know, these are certainly top of mind issues for teachers. How much are teachers making right now? Well, teach, as I say, teachers are making the second lowest wages in the province and uh, the, uh, nationally, and it really varies from district to district because we don't have one scale for teachers across the province, and it, it's a ten-point scale. And so uh, that well, what, means what's, that what's the top? What's the top salary in Metro Vancouver? Let's say. Well, it, it's it's Mike. It's gonna it's gonna vary, and I don't have that data right in front of me. But needless to say, it's the second lowest nationally, and so teachers that work in Vancouver by and large, do not live in Vancouver, and they commute in because they can't afford to buy, obviously, uh, in Vancouver. Well, well, ballpark it for me. Like, what are, they, what are teachers roughly making right now if you're at the top of the pay scale in Vancouver, let's say? Yeah, well, the top roughly. of the pay scale also means different things because you can be at the top of the pay scale with a um, graduate degree. You can be right. at the top of a scale with an undergrad degree. So it's a complicated wage structure, which we're also trying to simplify. Teachers have to work 10 years before they reach their top salary. And then it depends on their uh, education levels as to what they're paid. And so uh, that complication is part of why it's hard to attract newer teachers to BC um, or keep them in BC because we're having conversations with universities that are saying, you know, uh, teachers that come out of teacher education programs are really taking a hard look at, you know, where they're going to work. And, um, you know, certainly in parts of the province that are close to the Alberta border, that's a significant um, 
significantly more money that they can make if they go across, the, okay. you know, to Alberta. So okay, it's I'm, a I guess huge I, problem. I guess I'm just trying to give the listeners, a, you know, an idea of, of the numbers we're talking about here. So, like, like let's say a teacher roughly at the top of the pay scale is making what, like seventy thousand or something, or roughly what is it? Yeah, well, I I don't want <laughs> Mike. I don't want to give an exact figure because I don't have it in front of me. And as I say, uh, we don't we don't have uh, the exact same salary across this province. And um, you right. know, okay, how much? What kind of a raise are you asking for then? Well, we're looking for something that um, you know meets meets the cost of living, and so. Um, we are, you know, certainly, and, and we're in the early days of contract negotiations. Um, our contract does not expire until the end of June. And so we're, yeah. we haven't fully canvassed everything. But certainly um, what we are talking about um, is, is something that approaches the cost of living. Um, and, you know, as we know, it's, it's significant in B.C. So when anyone negotiates uh, an agreement that is below the cost of living, you're actually losing ground. And that's what's been happening for the last couple of decades. And that's why, you know, teachers in B.C. weren't always the second lowest paid. <laughs> but we've been the yeah. second lowest paid now for quite some time. Okay, so I'm taking a look at the inflation rate right now. So last month, we had that 31-year high of inflation across Canada, 6.7%. We haven't seen that for over 30 years. So is that that's, that's the raise you're looking for? You're looking for a raise that matches the inflation rate? So you're looking like 6% raise? Well, we're looking for, you know, that we, we are looking for something that will support teachers in terms of the rising cost of living. As I say, in, in BC, we're in a unique situation because it's not just that the cost of living uh, is increasing. We, in BC, yeah. we're starting at a very high rate, you know, in terms of the cost of living. And so, you know, that, that's why it's making it so hard to attract teachers from other jurisdictions. But, you, but, you're look, but you're looking for a raise that would at least match the inflation rate. Well, that, was is that, that fair that, to say? That's in that ballpark. Oh, I think okay. it's fair to say that's in the ballpark. Okay, speaking to Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation, you mentioned that the contract is still in place, it expires soon, you're in talks right now. What, you know, what is your read of what the, what is the government offering you? Are you guys like miles apart? How far apart are you? Well, you know, right now we haven't fully canvassed um, the wage part of it. You know, we're going through the collective agreement and we haven't done that. But we're concerned uh, from, what, you know, our conversations uh, with other public sector unions. We're, we're concerned. And, and certainly, you know, the BCGU has um, uh, put out what has been on the table uh, in their contract negotiations. And that's concerning because uh, that's not even close. Uh, to where, you know, where teachers need to be. And so we are concerned um, that there uh, just isn't uh, going to be enough at the table from this provincial government uh, in terms of contract negotiations. And, you know, we're certainly hoping that there's a recalibration here um, because it's important that, you know, teachers and, and the rest of the public sector who kept, you know, who kept our economy running. BC was the only jurisdiction in the country that kept schools running for the entire two years of the pandemic. Right. Um, and, you know, and at, at a high cost uh, to teacher health and wellness. And so, you know, we kept the economy going. And so in contract negotiations, you know, we, we want to see some results of, of that sacrifice. We were told throughout the entire pandemic how important 
important teachers were to communities, and we know that. We know that, you know, our work is really appreciated and was critical during the um, pandemic. And so, you know, now we're at the table saying, you know, we, we want to see the results of that um, value. Okay, what do you say to people who are listening to this right now and saying, well, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the union president saying teachers are underpaid, but I also know that teachers get a a very nice pension that a lot of other people, especially in the private sector, can only dream of having. How do you respond to that? The pension that teachers get supports the economy. So there, there has been study after study uh, done that shows that that money that goes uh, that uh, teachers uh, receive when they only if they teach for you know thirty years, Mike, um, and retire you know in their sixties, um, that yeah. money goes directly into the economy and supports the economy in a very significant way. And so you know it's um, the the money that goes into teacher salaries into teachers pension pension plans go back into the economy, um, and that's not that can't be said for you know another a lot of other folks that um, are very high paid and a lot of corporations that don't necessarily. Right you know, keep their money in Canada. You and ma- so it's, it's high value for money, I would say. You mentioned that some of the other public sector unions are putting out warning signals about contract talks stalled. Uh, notably, the BCGU is taking a strike vote. Would Do you rule out strike action, job action by teachers here? You know what? I, I uh, have been uh, around for long enough uh, that I'm not going to rule out anything, Mike. Uh, we yeah. certainly hope that we can achieve a collective agreement without job action. We did in the last round. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that, and there's no reason why um, you know tough negotiations can't happen at, at the table with a, with a reasonable result. And that's what we're looking for. And certainly, you know, with an NDP government who respects... Uh, collective agreement, uh, sex bargaining, um, you know, we fully expect that we should be able to do that. And our okay. goal is to get a, a collective agreement finalized before ours is, uh, is up. And so we are looking for a collective agreement to be finalized in B.C. with teachers before the end of June. Okay, we're following it closely. Thank you very much for coming on this morning. Thanks a lot, Mike. Let's go right to your phone calls here, fit in as many as possible. Kevin and Langley. Hi, Kevin, go ahead. Hey, buddy. So, you know, I'm sitting back and listening to these teachers. My uncle was a teacher at McNair High School for 30 years. He got paid a very big pension, very big wage, and then they're saying that they have COVID burnout. I noticed that my two young kids have more pro-D days now than I've ever seen. Two, the only thing I'm going to commend the union of the teachers about is they're willing to take the, the union, take the government to task. My wife is a nurse. They don't have a backbone in their union. She makes $27 an hour for being a nurse mm. for 27 years, okay? And we're yeah. losing nurses and teachers to the United States back east because our provincial government doesn't stand up and protect what is valuable and pay what they're worth. Okay, but Kevin. Our government, can, our government can take pay raises, and we can sit yeah. back and, and we can't stop this. So Thank you, Kevin, for the call. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Well, this is a tough union. There's no doubt about that. I mean, they have shown in the past that they're probably the union, the public sector union in BC that's most willing to go on strike or job action. And you heard the union president not rule that out again. Christine in Vancouver. Hi, Christine. Hi. You know, the support workers were the ones that were at the emergency childcare day after day when we were in lockdown working. Mm. Support workers in the classroom. 
those poor people only make only work six and a half hours a day. They're lucky if they clear thirty thirty five thousand a year. I mean, you know, like I understand the teachers need it. Everybody needs it. We're all. I'm leaving. I was born and raised here. I've worked for the board for over thirteen years. I got to go. Can't do it in Vancouver anymore, man. Everything well, you're, is so unbelievable. You're, so you're a school support worker, and you feel you you you're not getting paid. How much are you getting paid right now? I make $50,000 a year. Yeah. Okay. And you've had enough. You're out of here. I can't do it. I can't. There's yeah. no way I'll ever be able to buy a house. So there's no way I can, you know, like it yeah. was my birthday the other day. My dad says to me, oh, I'll send you a couple bucks. You can get two liters of gas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, Christine, thank you for sharing that. Mike in Abbotsford. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah, I just... uh you asked direct questions. You didn't get direct answers from this woman. I don't trust her one bit. And then as far as what's happening in the schools these days, I got young kids in the schools. I do not agree with the direction they're going. They have to stick to the basics. And um, I'm just not happy with teachers whatsoever. Thank you for the in call. General, in, in general. Thanks for the call. Brittany and Langley. Hi, Brittany. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I, I didn't. I agree with the last call. I didn't really like how she couldn't answer anything. What was the point of her even being on the show? You know, I looked up their wage, and it's up to $52 an hour. That's a decent wage. It just, it's, we can't afford to pay more taxes in B.C. It's the cost of living. It's, it's everybody's suffering right now. I I'm, can't I'm, even take my kids to school. Thank you for the call. I, uh, you know, I'm just taking a look at, you know, one of several work sites, employment sites in Vancouver that estimate salaries of different professions, and it lists average Vancouver teacher salary 61000 with a high of 87000 Now, if you get up into that high bracket, it's typically because you've been in the system for 10, 20 years. You probably got a master's degree. If you have higher education, you get higher salary. But yeah, I mean, you know, she didn't really want to talk uh, numbers in the interview, which, which is her right to do, I guess. But if you want to get the public on your side, you know, I, I think clarity and transparency is a better way to go about it rather than ducking and dodging on the question. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the abortion debate now in Canada and in the United States. This is blown right open now after the leaked draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court that would overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision of the U.S. High Court on abortion. Uh, this one uh, on the floor of the U.S. Senate yesterday as Democrats try to preserve abortion rights in the United States. Uh, that did not go forward in the U.S. Senate yesterday. We'll talk more about that later in the show. Here in Canada, the abortion debate also flaring again. After that leaked decision of the U.S. Supreme Court, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau asked about it yesterday, and here's what he had to say. We've been working on access to abortion across the country for a long time. In 2019, we made access to the abortion pill uh, easier right across the country. We're making further announcements today that uh, we are continuing to work on. These are things that we've been working on for a long time that matter very much to Canadians. Today what we're talking about is improving and ensuring access uh, for the rights that people already have. Uh, as I've always said, we will stand up and ensure that uh, women's rights are always protected in this country. Okay, another interesting thing from Trudeau, he was asked whether there would be new abortion legislation introduced in the House of Commons. He did not rule that out. There is, I think that is going to happen. We'll likely have some sort of an abortion bill 
uh, in the House of Commons. I think the liberals want to get the conservatives on the record here. I know there are some pro-life conservatives in that caucus may vote against abortion legislation if it reaches the House of uh, floor of the House of Commons. All right, let's talk about Canadian attitudes on this issue now with my guest, Steve Mossop, Executive Vice President of the Leger Polling Company. They've got a brand new survey out on this. Steve, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Steve, let's talk about uh, Canadian attitudes on the abortion issues. Let's talk about some of the high-level numbers that you found on whether Can- where Canadians stand on the issue of pro-life, pro-choice. Where, what did you find out? You know, it's interesting we're talking about this. I've been in the polling industry 30 years, and I don't remember ever covering it because it's an, it's an issue that we've never had to cover in Canada. Yeah. That being said, uh, you know, it's, it's really strong support in Canada uh, for, for women's right to have an abortion. It's 79% sure. and uh, 14% opposed, and there's a few on the fence that, that make up the remainder. That is a different situation in the USA. It's, a, it's about double the number who are opposed, so about 28% who are adamantly opposed, and then it breaks down in the U.S. a little bit differently on the uh, on the in favor side as well, because there's there's way more people that that would put conditional uh, terms around abortion, saying it's okay in certain circumstances. There's only about forty percent of Americans who say unequivocally that without any debate, a woman has a right to choose despite all the circumstances. Yeah, and you mentioned that you've been in the polling business a long time and and haven't done many surveys like this, and that's because the issue in Canada for a long time is been largely settled correct exactly uh, you know yeah. you think of you know when i was a kid uh, watching the morgan taller issue in yeah. canada surface and you know the, the polling part of my life came well after that and it was settled so it's really not been an issue here until now and 70 percent of canadians are very concerned about this they saw the decision in the u.s or the decision that's about to come down and uh, about half of canadians feel that it will influence what we do here in canada yeah, I mean, if you take a look at some other countries, like people who are likely pro-life in their position on this, or they want to see some sort of abortion legislation in Canada, they will say, look, you know, we should have laws around sex-selective abortions, which generally means a, a woman who would choose to have an abortion to avoid giving birth to uh, a girl for mm-hmm. like r- religious or cultural reasons. Like if you ask Canadians about that, they might say, oh yeah, maybe there should be a law on that. If you take a look at other countries that are largely pro-choice, abortion is legal, but they still have some restrictions. Like in France, you know, there are restrictions on abortion after 16 weeks of pregnancy. It, it, it differs from country to country. But in, in Canada, there's no laws at all. There's no law at all on abortion, right? No, and, and th- we also pose the question to Canadians to ask them whether... We inform them that if they didn't know already that there is no federal law that protects women's rights, but the general convention is that the governments will not legislate on the matter. So we ask whether the government of Canada should introduce a bill in the House of Commons to protect women's right to freely choose. And it, that's also about two-thirds of, uh, of all across Canada. What, two-thirds say, no, don't even introduce a, a law on it? No, they're right? saying introduce a law. They're saying introduce oh. a law that protects women's rights so that it's oh, okay. embedded in our laws. And then we've got that 18%, I've already mentioned the 14% of increase slightly to 18 It says, no, don't introduce that bill. We don't, we don't want to have that. And then again, about uh, 18% on the fence. They just don't know enough about the topic area. What is your read of this issue, given these numbers, given that the debate in Canada appears to be largely settled? 
yet we continue to see it flare up. Like we see Justin Trudeau yesterday talking about some, some new measures to increase abortion access across country, not, not ruling out some sort of legislation on abortion. I think that's what the Liberals want. They want to put an abortion bill in front of the House of Commons in order to force the Conservatives to vote on it. Um, because there's some pro- there's some- I agree, it's a bit okay. politicized because they know, they've probably seen our results of our poll that show 24% of Conservative voters across the nation are opposed to abortion. And that's that's a radical difference from the 6% of Liberal voters who are opposed. So they know they can capitalize on that and right. paint them into a corner, which which is, you know, for their own political game. But I think the attention is drawn to, uh, you know, almost a rebound effect or the opposite of what the U.S. is doing. So they're looking at doing their laws the other way. We're going to entrench the right to choose even more uh, distinctly in, in the Canadian system, and we're going to provide health care choices for women that support that uh, decision. Right. Speaking of Steve Massa from the Leger Polling Company, this all started with the leaked opinion from, draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court on the Roe v. Wade judgment. And man, this thing is, this issue has is now just exploded south of the border in the United States. And I know you asked Canadians their thoughts on that, on the Roe v. Wade leaked, leaked judgment there, right? What did you find out there? We did. And the interesting thing, if you back it up a little bit, is we first asked the question, are you even aware of the Roe versus Wade uh, case that, that decided all this years and years back, I believe, in 1973? And in Canada, it's only 59% who say that they've heard of it. And of the 59%, there's about 25% who really don't know anything about it. So less than half of Canadians are actually aware of that precedent-setting case. The U.S. is a different situation. It's 82%. It's embedded in their history, and people have read and learned about it over, over their lifetime. So here there's a little bit of education as to what's actually going on down there. Yeah, and are Canadians, for Canadians who are aware of the Roe v. Wade situation in the United States, do Canadians say they're concerned about what they're hearing coming out of America? Oh, absolutely. We've got 70% who are, are terrified. They're saying that it's, uh, it's a big issue in the USA. They're concerned and uh, they're they're saying it's directly impacting uh, how they feel about it. Right, okay. Steve, an interesting survey as always. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, man. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about this economy now, the pressure it is putting on people and their families, especially the rising costs of goods and services. Inflation is at a 31-year high. Canadians are feeling the pinch. They are reining in their spending. Uh, that's according to the brand new Future Consumer Index Survey just out from EY Canada. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Elliot Morris, consulting partner at EY Canada. Elliot, thank you very much for coming on today. Mike, a pleasure to join you. Okay, very interesting survey and a very timely one indeed. So let's talk about how this inflation is inf- affecting Canadian consumers what did you find out in your survey? So rising prices are making it hard for consumers to make non-essential purchases in particular. And so over half of Canadians say rising costs are affecting uh, both their ability to purchase essential goods and non-essential goods. In particular, uh, what we find is that uh, recently middle and high income earners are now starting to feel the pinch. And in the survey yeah. for the first time, more Canadians uh, are actually worried about the rising price of groceries uh, than getting COVID. And so obviously, uh, uh, rising prices are top of mind for people. Yeah, and a lot of people are changing their planning, their purchase plan, planning purchases, uh, 
accordingly. So let's talk about some of the items that people are planning to maybe change their mind about spending. So what are some of the items that people are choosing not to buy right now? So let's look at it this way, which is where there's high inflation is really around some big essential categories. And so food and gas. And so in, in yeah. with food and gas, people have limited choices. But in those places, they're trading down on brands. They're moving to cheaper products within the category. So think about eating chicken instead of steak. They're switching banners to discount stores. In non-essential categories, people are postponing purchases and they're choosing to buy less altogether. And so think about, in particular, clothing, consumer electronics, and beauty. Those are really places where people uh, are, are, are beginning to change their behavior. And over the short term, uh, that can persist. Over the longer term, obviously, that is, that is harder to, uh, to, to maintain. Yeah, some of these key items where Canadians are spending less money right now, as you mentioned, clothing, 40% in your survey, beauty and cosmetic products, big ticket items. So it's like automobiles and appliances? For sure. So automobiles and, yeah. automobiles and appliances in particular are being, are being pushed out, big ticket items. And you see it in the housing market as well, obviously, which wasn't in the survey, but we see people wanting to postpone in the face of uncertainty. And, uh, and inflation is one of those persistent problems that once it gets going, it can be difficult to stop. Speaking to Elliot Morris from EY Canada on their new consumer survey in Canada. Canadians making some tough choices here in the face of record high inflation right now. And as you mentioned, like, not surprisingly, people who are on the lower income part of the scale are the ones who are impacted the most by inflation. So your survey finding that 81% of low income earners reporting that they're having difficulty now here with with per, their purchasing power but it also this is also hitting middle income earners and high income earners too correct correct that's the big difference uh we've been running this survey nine times since covid started uh and through that we've been able to track spending over time and the big difference in this survey is the impact that increasing prices are having on middle and high income earners and there begins to be trade-offs that they're making and changes in the behavior particularly around uh, around uh, non-essential goods that we hadn't seen previously. And if you think about that impact on the broader economy, um, it can start to be meaningful and significant and go into uh, some of the larger purchases that you had mentioned earlier. Yeah, and, and you also said that in some cases, people may, may decide to completely put off uh, purchases completely, but in other cases, they may choose like a cheaper alternative, like start people are doing more comparison shopping, shopping around for trying to find bargains. Is that what's going on? For sure. So if you think about what was going on during COVID, people were having bigger basket sizes because they wanted to shop less and shop in fewer locations. That restri- As restrictions lift and as people go shopping for a price and shopping for promotions in particular, uh, their willingness to switch where they shop and willingness to switch within categories and across brands is increasing. And so it's a big warning for both retailers and for uh, and for suppliers to be wary that at this stage in the game, I think consumers are, are on the are on the watch and are willing to make changes. Yeah, yeah. And what does that mean for retailers out there who who may be looking at these trends and thinking, "Wow, how am I going to keep my customers? How can I keep people coming in my door and and keep my sales intact? What kind of what kind of advice would you give them?" Well, I think in addition to rising prices, uh, you, we've also had the last two years of COVID. And I think over that period of time, customers have become more thoughtful and discerning overall. Uh, and so to me, it's obvious that customers care about price. 
but they have a wider definition of value. And so while promotion and pricing is critical, uh, it's important to think about how loyalty programs are being deployed. It's important to think about the greater customer experiences, both in-store and digitally in particular. Right. So give people a reason to walk through your door and continue to purchase, right? Totally. P- exactly. People have people have just come through a period of time where, uh, for, for good reasons or bad, they have been restricted in where they can go. And so I think there's pent-up demand for, for going out for certain. But I also think there's a realization um, that there has been some benefit in the simplicity that they've been enjoying. And so I do think that people need incentives to be able to go back out into stores uh, in particular, and then when they're when they're uh, experiencing brands digitally, uh, I do think that that uh, that suppliers need to think hard about how they are uh, interacting with customers and keeping that customer. Do, do you mean like uh, when you say interacting digitally, like you mean like online shopping? Totally. And so, if you yeah. think about the number of people who would have migrated into online shopping, uh, in particular in grocery over the pandemic. Um, I think that they were willing to maintain staying on digital during the pandemic in part because uh, because of in-store restrictions. But as those restrictions are lifted, I think the experience of digital shopping becomes even more and more important. Um, and people need to make sure that's a frictionless experience. Otherwise, it'll be just one more dimension on which customers are willing to make a change. Elliot, thanks for coming on to talk about the survey today. I appreciate it. Terrific. Thanks, Mike. Okay, here we go now with the mob history in Las Vegas. I love Vegas. I love visiting there when I can. And I'm fascinated by the history of organized crime in the early days of Vegas. Bugsy Siegel. Oh, it's just so fascinating. Uh, the mob history of Las Vegas. Now check out what's going on now in Lake Mead. The drought, the water levels plummeting in Lake Mead near Las Vegas. And now the bodies, the bodies showing up at the bottom of Lake Mead, including a rusted metal barrel that showed up with a body inside, gruesome. A few days later, more human remains emerged in Lake Mead. As the water levels continue to drop, are these mob hits? Are these victims of the mafia from the early days of Vegas? They were dumped in Lake Mead? Wow, some people think that could be the case. Let's check in with Jeff Schumacher now. Jeff is the vice president of the Mob Museum in Vegas, which is a great place to visit. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey Jeff, how many how many bodies have they found so far? Is it still just two? Uh, we're still at two, and and just one of them it appears is a is a murder victim. The other one, yeah. perhaps, is a drowning or something like that. I guess the murder victim is the one in the barrel. I guess right. Yeah, yeah. yeah have, they, yes. have they identified that the, the, the remains? No, that individual has not been identified yet. Uh, local authorities have said it may take a while. You know, they've, they've got to do DNA testing, and they need to see if we can find matches. Also, they're taking, you know, dozens of tips from people about who it might be, scouring the records for missing persons and so forth. So it may take a little while, but uh, you know, there's some confidence that they'll eventually figure out who it is. Do you think they'll find more bodies at the bottom of Lake Mead as the water levels continue to drop? Uh, I definitely do. Uh, that's wow. not to say that they're all going to be murder victims. You know, a lot of them would be drownings. Uh, you know, there's a, 
a long record in a lot of lakes, but including Lake Mead, where people have drowned and their bodies have not been recovered. So as this lake recedes, you know, that unfortunately is going to be the case. We're going to find more more bodies, which could be a good thing. And there's a silver lining for families, maybe, that they can have some closure on what happened to one of their family members, uh, maybe have a proper burial, that kind of thing. Uh, but as far as murder victims, you know, the, it's pretty exciting that the first one we find is it was stuffed in a barrel after being shot in the head. Yeah, I remember seeing some movies where the the mob hits in Vegas. A lot of people would say they go out to the desert and dig a hole and bury them bury them out in the desert. But man, dumping a body into a lake is would you say it's probably you know probably a, a, not a bad place to dump a body for if they're a mob a mobster might feel that way. Well, yeah, so you mentioned uh, burying bodies or dumping bodies out in the desert. That is probably the prevailing. Uh, story about Las Vegas, you know, that there's presumably all these bodies, you know, of mob victims uh, out in the desert. I don't think, I think that's exaggerated. I, we know it has happened. Uh, we have examples of cases where bodies were found in the desert that were, in fact, victims of murder. Um, but more often in other parts of the country, you hear about bodies being dumped into bodies, uh, bodies of water, right? The ocean, yeah. a, a river, a lake. And so it, it Lake Mead would be the closest uh, body of water to Las Vegas and one of the few because we're, we're pretty dry here except for Lake Mead. So uh, that's we hadn't thought of it. I think locals hadn't really thought much about the idea of mob uh, hits occurring at the lake, but, you know, this could, it yeah. could happen. Speaking of Jeff Schumacher, he's the vice president of the Mob Museum in Vegas on the bodies turning up at the bottom of, of Lake Mead. Hey, Jeff, I mean, you're an expert on the history of the mob in Vegas. Like, who are some of the more prominent mobsters who who disappeared, who maybe they're at the bottom of that lake? <laughs> well, you know, the first thing to think about, I think, to, to clarify, is a, a victim of a mob hit wouldn't necessarily be a mobster, that, that person, right? It'd be yeah, a, sure. Maybe you didn't, didn't pay their loan shark, right? Right, or, right. Uh, ran up, uh, maybe they stole something uh, from a mobster, or maybe they just looked at them the wrong way. I, we've heard of that happening. So it, it, it could still be a mob head and not be a mobster at the bottom of the lake. Uh, right. That said, um, they, we have been researching, you know, any uh, incidents where there are individuals who – uh, went missing at that time that were involved with any kind of mob activity. And, you know, one individual that his name keeps popping up is a man named Jay Vandermark. Jay Vandermark was someone who crossed the mob at the Stardust Hotel uh, back in the days. And this is really echoed in the movie Casino. There's a character who played uh, the, the version, you know, the movie version of Jay Vandermark. Uh, now, people have said that Vandermark was last seen in Phoenix and that perhaps he was uh, killed down in Central America. So, but maybe that was a diversion. And in fact, he was buried in <laughs> Lake Mead. Well, we'll find out. Uh, but, you know, another thing that was happening then was there was a lot of, you know, witnesses, you know, uh, that went missing and uh, government informants. So there's, there's all kinds of, uh, of possibilities. What about Jimmy Hoffa? Is anyone in Vegas saying maybe Hoffa's at the bottom of the lake? Well, I'll tell you, his name comes up a lot. Uh, I would, uh, I have some 
confidence that it's not Jimmy Hoffa. First of all, uh, the police identified the clothing that this individual in the barrel was wearing uh, had been purchased at Kmart in the 1970s. <laughs> and, and my guess is that Jimmy Hoffa didn't buy his clothes at Kmart. Uh, <laughs> the, the second thing is, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, we know, was killed in the Detroit area. And yeah. one of two things happened. To, to Nobody is a, no missing person case has been investigated more, more thoroughly than that one. And the, the leading authorities believe that Hoffa was buried either, or killed and, and disposed of either in the Detroit area or possibly his body was taken to New Jersey and buried under a dump site, by the way, in a barrel. <laughs> That's the oh. story. So we'll see what happens with the New Jersey story. There's some investigation going on now that might reveal something. We'll see. I've I've been to the Mob Museum in in Vegas, Jeff. I I think it's awesome. It's a great place. I love the history of Vegas. Like, do you think um, who killed uh, who killed Bugsy Siegel? Was that ever solved? And and do you think some of these bodies that are washing up at the bottom of Lake Mead could that could that lead more clues into who killed Bugsy? Well, I would say it, to to sort of fully answer your question about Bugsy, we'd need a whole a whole other program and a half, <laughs> but. There are there are a large number of theories about who killed Bugsy that, and I don't, I haven't settled on one, uh, except that I do think it was his, his, you know, his, his friends in the mob who probably did it, who were probably responsible for for his demise. I think he had run his course in their mind uh, at the Flamingo Hotel, and that they needed new management there, and that they, they were kind of getting sick of Bugsy's arrogance and some of the things he was doing. So I, I do believe it was a mob hit on Bugsy. There are other people who think it may not have been, that it may have been some other reason he was killed. Uh, but, um, you know, he was killed in, in California, in Beverly Hills. Yeah, right. And I think that was on purpose. They did not want to have the murder occur in Las Vegas because that would be bad for tourism. Okay, last question for you, Jeff. The water levels in Lake Mead, are they continuing to drop? Like, is the drought still going on? Yeah. The drought is still going on, and the water levels will continue to low, go lower. Um, this has to do with this is all controlled by the federal government in terms of how much water in each of the different basins along the Colorado River. And so we, we expect that, at least in the short term, it's going to continue to go down, and then you know, could we all hope for rain. Right. Okay, so the water levels go down and the body count goes up. Is that potentially what's yeah. going to happen here? Find more bodies. Yes, I think so. Okay, all right. We're following it closely. Jeff, thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it. Uh, Thanks for having me.